Distance Daddies. Hey everybody and welcome back to the 13th episode of Distance Daddies. On today's episode we welcome two-time Olympian and world's medalist Kara Goucher. We discuss her long running career and continued involvement with the sport through announcing for NBC. We also discuss the outside pressures female athletes deal with to try to look a certain way and perform better and how to overcome that, as well as the importance of running for yourself and not others when you find you have lost some of that love for running. We also discuss her involvement in the Clean Sports Collective podcast, in the battle against doping in our sport, and more. If you haven't already, make sure to follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and follow us on Instagram at distance underscore daddies. And with that, let's get into it. On today's episode, we welcome two-time Olympian and silver medalist at Worlds, Kara Goucher. Thanks for joining us, Kara. Hey, thanks for having me. Of course. Let's start with, for someone who hasn't been involved for running for so long, what started it all? Um, When I was six, my grandpa took me to a one-mile race, and I did that, and then um, that kind of became our thing. I'd run a few races a year, but I was involved in a lot of other sports and activities I played tennis and little league and soccer and dancing and softball and all sorts of other things. So running was just like a fun thing I did a couple times a year with my grandpa. And then when I was in middle school, I decided to go out for the seventh grade cross country team because I went to volleyball tryouts and it looked really hard. So I switched to to cross country where there were no cuts. And I totally fell in love with the organized running situation with a coach, with teammates, with training, with goals. And yeah, I was pretty much hooked from seventh grade cross country on. Wow, that's awesome. What made you then progress that into a professional career? Um, well, I didn't really know how good I was in seventh grade, obviously. I went out for the high school. I grew up in Minnesota, and you could start running for the high school when you were in seventh grade. So the high school coach asked me if I joined the um, the high school track team in seventh grade. So I started this group of girls and I, we would walk down from our middle school down to the high school. And so I ran track for the high school. I was, I mean, it was okay, not great or anything, but pretty good. And then in eighth grade is when I started winning a lot of races and I was third at the state meet in cross country and in the two mile on the track. And I started thinking, hmm, like maybe I'm kind of good at this. And it just kind of like progressed throughout high school. I made it to Foot Locker, which is a high school national cross country championship. I made that twice, won some state titles and started thinking about, I mean, I was dreaming about becoming an Olympian and a professional athlete at this point, but it still seemed really unrealistic. Um, And I went to University of Colorado on a very small scholarship and kind of worked my way up to a full. And there were people at Colorado, the Culpeppers, Adam Goucher, who's my husband now, who were running professionally. And so I got to see a glimpse into that world. And it was really up and down. Like I, I really struggled in college. And then when I first graduated, I really struggled, but I always kind of just kept following it. I was determined to do it as long as I could. I think, um, you mentioned in the past that like part of that struggle was comparing yourself to other, um, athletes around you. How did you like kind of grow to control that, that anxiety that comes with that? Cause I think that's common with a lot of runners. Yeah, I always felt like I was the person that didn't fit in. I would always look at other girls or women my age and see how fast they were running. And I really had to just learn to focus on myself and to have my own progression. And it would be a lot harder now with social media than it was when I was running because social media really came in towards the end of my career. But to really just focus on my day to day. And I did start working with a sports psychologist pretty early on in my career Um, just talking through my anxieties, really working on how to be in the moment and to really focus inward and not outward. Like what are the things in my body that are telling me I am doing a good job, that I am succeeding, but really had to really focus in on myself. And that's hard. I don't care if you're in high school, college, a professional athlete, the comparison game is real. And so there was definitely times where I'd switch back into that, but 
it never went well when I would start worrying about what someone else is doing. I always had to like, okay, bring it back to myself and my own path to success. Yeah, yeah, definitely. How valuable do you think a sports psychologist just is for that? I mean, I was lucky to be able to work with a few different sports psychologists. Um, I I don't know that you have to see a sports psychologist, but I do think working on the mental side is really important. I mean, I could like confess all of my greatest fears to my sports psychologist and they would help me use that as a tool to be better. They would help me prepare for when doubts were going to come during races or during long, hard efforts. And those are the things you need to have in your toolbox because I don't care how fit you are. There's always going to come some point in the race where you're like, I don't want to do this. You know, like my son was telling me last night, sometimes I think if I just trip, then I could drop out. I mean, I don't care who you are, how fit you are. There always comes that point where you doubt yourself, you know? And so I think being prepared for that and not fearing that and working with a sports psychologist helped me to not fear when those thoughts came. Instead of thinking they were kind of embarrassing, I sort of embraced them. I knew they were going to come and I had a plan to work through them. So, I mean, if you can work with a sports psychologist, I think it's awesome. If you can't, there's plenty of things you can find online and stuff. Um, I wrote a book about that, but there's plenty of resources to help you learn how to work through tough times. I think it's a big part of the mental game of running. Yeah, that's great. I know last year you had posted on Instagram uh, right after the news broke about the DEXA scans coming out of Oregon, just like a pretty vulnerable post, uh, just kind of saying like, this is a picture of me. Like I had some skin hanging over my shorts, but I was like one of the fittest women in America. So do you have any like advice for collegiate runners or just women runners in general that kind of deal with that stuff? I know Eric and myself both know runners that have dealt with eating disorders um, and a lot of pressures that come with that. So do you have any advice for them? Yeah, I think eating disorders are unfortunately really common, especially in um, female running, whether it's high school, collegiate, professional. And I think we, it is so hard now. Again, I'm so lucky I didn't have social media because you see these images that are just, you can't replicate them, right? Like these are the fittest people on the planet during the fittest moments of their lives. And you see that and you're like, wow, I should look like that. And not all bodies can look the same. I used to train with Shalane Flanagan. It didn't matter how lean I got. I was never going to look as lean as her. And so everybody has different body types. You know, I struggled a little bit in college with getting really controlling about what I ate and I had success for a while, but then I had years of horrible injuries, stress fractures, and I missed like three years where I could have been building to a bigger and better me on the elite stage. I, I just missed all that time. And so I just want to give everyone a hug and just say like, it's okay. Like there, nothing should be off limits. Everybody's bodies are different. You know, I ran the New York City Marathon in two, 2008. I know that was so long ago, God. Anyway, um. At the time I ran like the American course record. And, and after that day, there were coaches that were saying, if I just lost a little bit more weight, I could be great. So you're never going to, it's never enough. And that's not the focus. The focus should be, what are you doing? How are you performing? I was one of the best women in the world. I was running the best I've ever run. And you can't run when you're on empty. You can for a little bit, but think about, I mean, it's the simplest analogy, but think about your car. If you don't put gas in the car, it's just going to tuck her out on the road. So I really wish we could reframe it and we could look at food as fuel and we could look at food as something to help you recover, prep for a hard effort, you know, lots of carbs before a long, hard effort. So you have more energy, a little protein heavy the day after so that you can recover and rebuild those muscles. And I wish we could talk about it in a way where we were talking about ways to eat to enhance your performance rather than just getting skinny. It doesn't work. Never works long-term. Yeah. Yeah. I love that car analogy. I use that a lot with like my patients um, cause I'm a physical therapist and I feel like the medical realm and like the, the nutritionists are, are starting to really become aware of how, um, how much of a negative impact that type of thing can have on, on your performance. Do you think there's anything that can be done in terms of like educating more coaches about this? Or do you think it's just kind of the coaches being selfish and trying to like get that fast times like while they have these athletes in college? Um, what are your thoughts on that? 
I don't necessarily think the coaches are being selfish. I think it's just the way it's been forever, right? Like, oh, if I could get her to lean out a little bit, she'll run a little bit faster, we'll score more points. And you're not thinking about like her 10 years from now. Well, she's still struggling with this eating issue and she can never be comfortable around food again. I don't think that they're necessarily bad people. I just think it's the way it's always been. And so that's what I'd like to see change. You know, I have this like, wild dream of coaching a bunch of elite athletes and I cook for them every night. It's just like all of this food and they can eat as much as they want because it's all healthy and they really learn to listen to their bodies and see what their bodies need. And I mean, it'll never happen, but it's just like this thing I would love to do. But I think there needs to be like a whole shift in culture. And I do think, you know, like that story from the U of O that came out last year, all of when we share, we like normalize the fact that these things are happening and we, it's not, it's nothing to be ashamed of anymore. Right. Like we've all felt these pressures and I think males feel these pressures too. We've all felt these pressures to take our bodies to places where it's just not healthy to take them. And so let's talk about it. Why do we feel that way? And what can we do about that? Like, like I said, I'd love to change the cultures that we're not talking about calories, but we're actually talking about the good that food can do for you. Um, I think it's going to take a while. I, I think that we're seeing some small changes simply because people are actually talking about it, but I don't know that we've seen a change as far as like administration coaches yet that hopefully will come as we keep talking about it and younger kids come up and become coaches themselves or people like you that are actually willing to talk to athletes about it and willing to say, Hey, I, I, I'm worried. I don't think that you're getting enough gas in the tank. Like we need to be able to have those conversations. Yeah, yeah, I think the athletes talking about it is is huge, like you said, because um, then, I mean, kind of like what happened in Oregon, it puts puts it in the spotlights and puts more pressure on the coaches to to change their way of thinking. Totally. So I know in the past you've dealt with injuries, as you just said. I guess from someone who, myself, who's just had so many injuries from running, uh, and a lot of other people that just can get like disheartening if you're so injury prone, like you just want to keep running and keep getting better, I guess just from your career, like how do you take that and like still keep going? Yeah. I mean, I was injured so much starting in high school through college. When I signed my first contract, I was injured for like the first three years. And you start to think like, honestly, I started to regret that I ever loved running or that I was good at it, right? Because I had all these dreams and these goals that I thought I could maybe achieve. And it was like, I can't even stay healthy for four months. How the hell am I ever going to make an Olympic team? You know what I mean? Um, But I finally was like, anytime I thought about, okay, I'm just going to move on in life. I'm going to go back and get a degree, some sort of psychology degree that I can use. Anytime I would think about that, I would feel this pang of like regret of like, I know I have more to give. I don't know how much it is, but I know I do. And so it just kept me in it. And, you know, I would just cross train like crazy and just be psycho. But one of the things I started to do as I got older is I would just try to totally reframe it as this. Okay, I got I got another stress fracture. That sucks. But now I have time I didn't think I was going to have. So I'm going to go do some like happy healing stuff. And I'm going to go visit my friends. I'm going to go visit my family. And then when I come back and I start like rebuilding back, I'm going to focus on all sorts of like, I'm going to focus on whatever weakness caused this injury, which usually for me would be like a weak hip or a weak butt. And then, you know, you get in an off pattern and then there's compensation and be like, when I am able to hit the ground running, I'm going to be the strongest in my core that I've ever been. So I'd really try to reframe it into not necessarily something positive but as an opportunity to be a better athlete when I came back and and happier just because I visited people I cared about and and healthier because I really addressed that. It's super hard. And I'd be lying if I was like, yeah, I'd find out I had stress fraction. I'd be like, okay, just watch out. I'll be back in 12 weeks. It wasn't <laughs> like that, right? Like it was like days of crying and like, again, I can't believe this happened to me again, you know, and I still have days like that. But in general, after I'd sulk for a couple of days, I'd be like, okay, well, what am I going to do? I know I'm not going to quit. So now what am I going to do? I have to face it and try to make something out of this time. I listened to the recent podcast on the Running Rogue podcast, just when you had said about how you wanted to like win Boston and had all this media attention. And then when you didn't win, you just like kind of weren't really sure where you're at, if you still like wanted to keep running. How does like mindset like play into that ultimately 
Mindset is huge and it sounds simple, but if you are not enjoying the process, it sucks. And sometimes when we start to meet goals that we had, we start to, we start to kind of lose that joy because we're always just looking ahead for the next thing and the next goal and the next improvement. And I kind of feel like by the time I got to the Boston Marathon that year, that would have been um, 2009, I wasn't even really running for myself anymore. You know, I was like running to try to like, it was for everybody but myself. Like, of course I wanted to win Boston, but my reasons for wanting to win Boston weren't, none of them like came back to me. They were all about like pleasing my sponsor, making my family proud, making my coach happy. It was just like making the US proud, but none of it was like, and for me, cause I'm the one putting in the work and I'm having fun with it, you know? So I think like, it's so hard and, and, that was a tough time for me. I ran one more marathon after that. I ran the world championships and just totally sucked because I just had nothing. I had no spirit left. And I think a lot of us, I don't care if you're a leader or not, we go through stages like that where we're just not feeling it and we're forcing it and forcing it. And that's for me now, it's like a red flag. You need to not stop necessarily, but take a big step back and say, why am I doing this? You know, if the bottom line isn't for your enjoyment, then it's not worth doing. So sometimes taking a step back, like for me, I would love to go to Minnesota and run on the trails that I ran on as a kid and just remind myself, like, this is what I love. I love being, I love understanding myself and being in touch with myself and seeing how far I can push my body and all of this other stuff, pleasing people, making other people happy. Um, that's, that's not, that can't be why I'm doing it because it just, it, you can't keep that up forever. You have to be enjoying it and you have to be loving what you're doing. And that was like a big turning point for me. I felt like I'm, I'm just like digging a hole and I'm never going to want to race again. And I really had to pull myself out of it. And I mean, it was pretty drastic. I had a baby, but maybe you could do something simpler than having a baby. But I really had to like do something to back off, to re be able to rekindle the joy and the love for the sport. Yeah, 100%. I know a lot of people just that I've talked to recently have just said that they needed to go back, like take some time and just refine like their love for running, uh, whether that was just because of injury, they get burnt out or what have you. Um, so I think that can be super helpful in the long run. Uh, just going back, do you think that there's one like best injury prevention tip that you have for women? Yeah, I think with with women specifically, like we think like when we say, oh, I need strong core, we think of like shredded abs, but actually like as a female, our hips are different. So I think it's like simple things. Like a lot of people call it prehab. I used to call it just my exercises, but literally in 10 to 20 minutes, and you can make it as short as you want, but you like just warming up that area, doing hip dips, doing monster walks with the band, making sure that whole area is functioning and ready to go when you go outside. And I have to tell you, I, in, when I was training for the 2016 trials, I was so dedicated to these exercises because I was so afraid of getting injured. I was older. I was like 37 and I would do them every night while we were watching TV and they would literally be 15 minutes. But like you could have thrown anything at me during that time and I, I wouldn't have gotten hurt. I was like so rock solid and I still didn't have shredded abs, but I knew I was like just so solid and strong. So I think doing those little things. And like I said, planks, hip dips, monster walks, making sure your glute is firing. All that can be done in a pretty short amount of time, but it just makes sure that when your body goes out, you're not going to have those compensatory issues because everything's fired and everything's ready to go. Yeah. Or I would do them at night actually, because I'm lazy like that, but <laughs> still, it would still help me. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And I know recently you've been dealing with runner's dystonia from what I've seen, like it's a pretty rare disorder. Uh, so could you kind of explain what that is um, and then just how it's been like dealing with that? Yeah, runner's dystonia is super weird. It's very rare, although I kind of think it's just under-researched a little bit because a lot of people I think probably do develop it and they just move on and do something else. But essentially runner's dystonia is a part of a repetitive movement dystonia. And so you'll see like musicians get it um, or writers will get it in their hands or hands will cramp. It'll do all these, you know, weird things with their hands they can't control or same with musicians with the guitar. It happens a lot in professions where it's repetitive movement. We don't 
the doctor neurologists don't know why it starts, how it comes on. They don't know anything. It just like, essentially they just say at some point your brain wires got crossed. And so for me, I have it in my left leg, basically from the knee down. And when I would run, I just felt like I didn't have any control of my lower leg. And um, I would feel like I was slipping all the time because I couldn't tell that it was making contact with the ground. Um, I don't know if you guys are hockey people, but I would say, this is what I told my neurologist. I was like, it's like I'm blindfolded standing on freshly Zambonied ice. And I, you know, I can't trust, like, I feel like it's, I, it's not going to stay under me. I can't trust that it's been planted. And he was kind of like, oh, right. So he wasn't a hockey person. But anyway, um, and it was just, just really weird. It took me almost a year to get a diagnosis. It actually took 11 months to get a diagnosis. And I was still sort of in denial. Um, and then I was accepted at the Mayo Clinic in their neurology department. The doctor there um, also confirmed it. And this is where it gets tricky is that there are some doctors who say you need to stop running because there is a possibility it could spread throughout your body. And then there are doctors who say, no, 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 you can't, you'll never run like you used to, but there's things we can do to at least get you back out there. And so, you know, being a marathoner and a crazy runner, I went with that second option of like, okay, so maybe I can't run a marathon anymore, but maybe I can get some sort of relief. So I've been doing, um, I'm on a Parkinson's medication because there's a lot of similarities between Parkinson's and dystonias, which has helped me because for a while I really was struggling to even walk and like just plant my foot while walking. And that has helped me a lot. Um, I don't think I would want to take it if I was a competitive athlete because it, it can cause a lot of fatigue and some dehydration, stuff like that. But I'm not elite anymore. Um, and then I also have been doing Botox injections. So when you have um, dystonia, like, so every time I've got my Botox injections, there's a needle in there and it's reading the sound of my muscle contraction. So she sticks the needle in and she'll say flex and it goes, you know, it's like making all this noise. And then she'll say relax and it'll keep going. But if I didn't have dystonia, it should go quiet. And so my brain is constantly sending the signal like fire, fire, fire. And so that's why I have no control over it. So the way that the dystonia works is that it blocks that signal. So your brain says fire, but <laughs> Botox has everything dead down there. Um, and so I've been trying that. I just had my second treatment. And it's definitely not like, I'm like really a half glass, half full person. So I just thought like she was going to give me the Botox and I was going to be myself. And I'd just be like, oh, that was weird. Yay, moving on. And it's, it's not like that. Um, it's been very humbling of how small the changes are. Um, and then I have to really keep up my strength in that leg because it is dead. And so like, I have to do like PT to keep it strong. So I don't know. It's been tough. It's been really tough. Um, I'm thankful that I'm able to run the amount that I am, but I would, you know, be lying if I said, I, I don't want more. I would like a lot more. And it's just been a really weird thing. And I have a lot of people ask me, well, what did you do to get that? Is it because you ran through injury or this or that? And it's like, no, just unlucky. Like it's not something you can catch. So it's been really hard explaining it to people, not, not you guys, but it's just, it's been a lot. And so I'm just trying to find my own way. And the, I have set a goal to run a 10 K with my son. And last week was the last week, two weeks ago. My doctor told me that realistically, that probably won't happen in 2023, which I was pretty bummed to hear, but that maybe by 2024, I'd be able to do that. So it's, dystonia is weird. You put me on a treadmill and even though my leg looks weird, I feel fine. You put me on crushed gravel, my leg still looks weird, but I feel fine. You put me on pavement, I take like three steps and I'm panicking. It's just really weird. Surfaces matter. And so yeah, my goal is to be able to run 10K on the roads and I was hoping it would happen next year, but um, we'll see. Yeah. Is that the Boulder Boulder? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. well, my son and I want to run Boulder Boulder together. And I'm like, great. If I can't run with him this year and I run with him in 2024, I'm going to actually have to like get in really good shape because by then he's probably going to be really fast. <laughs> so I'll actually have to like work out to have some fitness to be able to run with him. Yeah. In that transition, just from dealing with the initial signs of dystonia to now and just not being able to run as much how have you like been doing with that transition have you had to like put more time into other aspects of your life to try and offset it while still like kind of keeping that same like uh I guess like happiness that you usually get from like running 
Yeah, it's tough, right? Because when I was diagnosed, the doctor's like, well, you know, could you get into cycling? And I'm like, no, I can't get into cycling. I'm into running. You know what I mean? Like I've been doing, I'm 44. I've been doing this since I was six. Like, no, I don't want to learn how to ride a gravel bike. So it's been very, very humbling. And also, I think after years and years of being an elite athlete, I just feel like, oh, I'll just, I'll be the one that can just run through it. And and it hasn't been like that. So it, it has been hard. It has been really hard. And I'm like talking calmly, but like there's been a lot of days where I'm really upset and crying. Um, but I've tried to be positive because like during this whole process, they thought maybe I had MS and then they thought maybe I had ALS. And so of all of the things that could have been, it's the best of all the things it could have been, you know, um, but it's, it's still hard. I mean, my goal last year was to run a 50 mile race and now I can't, I don't know if I can run a 50 mile week, you know? So it's just very, it's been very humbling day by day. I have good days and bad days. I have days where I feel kind of normal and I'll go out and try to do a workout. And then I have days where I get out the door and then I, I mean, I can't run for my house anymore. So I get out of the car and I get a half mile down the trail and I have to just turn around and come back. It's very humbling. And I don't, I still don't know what triggers bad days. I mean, obviously when I'm fatigued, it triggers that and some sort of stress, but I haven't like perfectly nailed it down yet. So it's a weird place for me to not understand my body as a person that's been so in tune with my body for so many years. It feels really weird and it's, it's humbling, but no, please don't ask me to go for a bike ride. I will not go with you. (laughs) (laughs) And this is one of those things where like the harder you push through, like on those bad days, the worse the symptoms kind of get, right? Yeah, hundred percent. If I'm having a bad day and I just, um, I'm just going to run through it anyway. That's when actually I struggle to, I have some problems walking. So gotcha. like I said, it's super humbling because like you guys know, you're like, Oh, I'll just push through this, you know? And then the next day you're really suffering. Like I would come down the stairs of my house and I still can't turn to the right while I'm running, but I would know I'd come down my stairs and turn to the right to go into the kitchen. And I'd be like, Oh shit. Like I, almost just fell. So yeah, it's just really like a weird place of acceptance, especially when you've grown up just pushing, 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 you know, like Mm -hmm. I'm tough. I can get through anything. It's, it's hard to be like, I actually can't, I can't push through this. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. I'm sure that's been a tough process, but super inspiring that you've still been able to stay like motivated and still want to keep going. I've seen that your son Colt has been doing a middle school cross country. And I know most parents are fine with like their kids, like they want to be happy, like do whatever sport that they love. But does it feel a little special that he's doing the sport that like you and Adam have devoted so much of your life to? Oh yeah. Yeah. I love it. But I can't even tell him that because he's like, you know, I was like, well, maybe I could volunteer. And he's like, please don't, you know? So (laughs) You know how like with a cat, if you go and give it tons of attention, it'll just walk away. But if you kind of ignore it, it'll come over. That's how I kind of feel like I have to be with Culp and running is like, you know, I oh, oh, you ran today. Oh, that's cool. Well, how'd it go? I, oh, whatever. You know, like super chill about it. Because if I'm like, oh, my God, you're running. I'm so happy. He's like, I might quit. You know, um, it's tough. And there's a lot of people that have asked him his whole life if he's going to run. And so we Adam and I try so hard to be super supportive and cheer him on in his meets and be there for him, but also like really don't push too much and let his coaches make the decisions. And, um, but yeah, I mean, he is loving it and his middle school has practice before school because it's so hot here. And when I found that out, I was like, Oh yeah, he's not going to do that. But he, he is, he got up at six today. I took him to practice. They start at seven 20. And so it's cool to see. And he's, he looks like Adam when he runs, he's a beautiful runner, and I hope he continues with it. Um, but, you know, you never know. Last year, all of a sudden, he wanted to be a football player, which blew my mind. And we were in flag football. So who knows what will happen? Yeah, that's awesome. I'll be on the look for him someday in Boulder, Boulder. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, how has the progression just been from, like, running to doing the broadcasting and announcing for track and NBC? It's been good. I mean, it's not. It's nothing that I ever thought I would be doing at all. I'm a total homebody and it requires a lot of travel and time away from my family. And it's just something I never even thought was like in the cards for me. Um, I guess it was, when was it? Like, and I guess it was in 2021. I got 
it seems like it was so long ago, but it wasn't. I haven't even been doing it for two years. So yeah, I just got an email from Becky Chapman at NBC and she was like, hey, we'd love to chat with you. And I, and she told me it was about auditioning. And I, I remember talking to Adam and being like, I don't know. I mean, I think I could be kind of good, but I don't know. He was like, just do the audition. You know, what do you have to lose? And I did it here over there where now my NBC equipment is set up. And I had so much fun in the audition. It was so fun. And then I found out I got the job, but then we went back and it was a two hour audition. I basically was just calling races with Lee Diffie from world champs 2019 when they were in Doha. And so then I had like my actual training where I watched back all of the races that I called and it was like so cringy and uncomfortable. Um, how much, like, I did not know what I was doing and still sometimes I don't, but I think I've gotten into a better space. They, they took me through that training and you know, the team I work with is so good. And so, and the thing is, I just think it's so fun. I love calling the races. I love getting excited. I love when I see the moves happen. I love that I get to tell people that the moves are about to happen. So I know I can get better and I will get better, um, but it has been a really fun adventure for sure. Yeah. I thought you did a great job at Worlds. Definitely some great insights uh, during the races. And I saw a couple pictures on Twitter of just your like notes before, and I had never realized how much like work beforehand kind of goes into that so that was really cool to see those big meets is awesome because we have researchers and so they give you like the highlights like what have they done as an athlete how did they come up through the ranks and then I always try to study and personalize it but like I'm calling Brussels tomorrow and we don't get any notes for this so I put in about an hour and a half yesterday getting ready for even though I know the women in the race I still like what if I panic what if I forget it's like when I was younger and the way I studied was just writing everything over and over and over again. And so I put in about an hour and a half getting the women's people ready. And then tonight I'll do the men's five and women's 15. So it is a lot of work. It, it really is. And, but it's, it's so fun. And the funny thing is all these notes, once the gun goes off, I don't look at them once. <laughs> I mean, I have them there. Like they're my, like, like, like a, my blankie, like my safety net, but I never, once the gun goes off, I'm just like in the moment with Lee or Paul, whoever I'm calling with. And I don't even look down. It's crazy. Maybe on the marathon where we have a little bit more time, but in the track races, you're just in the moment. Wow. Super Any cool. big predictions for that meet tomorrow? Um, I'm interested. There's, I'm interested in a lot of American storylines tomorrow. I don't necessarily think they'll be in the front, but I'm interested to see like in the women's steeple, Courtney, Ferrix and Emma Coburn have really like put together good training, but haven't found that like great race yet this year. And I'm like, this is, they're running out of time. I want to see if they can do that. Um, and the men's five Grant Fisher is running. And one of the things about Grant Fisher that I felt like he needed is more experience on the circuit. And so I'm excited to see that he's doing that because I think that he, we all know he can run fast. I mean, mm -hmm. what the heck he ran like 1250 something indoors. So we know he can run fast, but he just needs, I feel like he needs more experience in those races, reading everybody else. So I'm excited to see that he's doing that um, because I think that's going to really help him come Worlds next year. And then in the women's 1500, again, I'm super excited. It's a great field. It's miss, it's missing Kip Yegon, but otherwise it's an awesome field. And we saw Heather McLean kind of step up when Kip Yegon went for that world record. She actually got second, ran under four minutes for the first time. So I'm excited to see if she can kind of like break into that upper echelon of uh, distance running. Sinclair Johnson's also going to be in it. So I'm like really excited about the American storylines tomorrow. Um, but I'll have to hide that when I'm calling the race. <laughs> How hard is it to do that? Like to, I mean, obviously people know you're American, but you have to show some sort of neutrality. Is that tough to do? It is tough. And I mean, I am calling for NBC, which is the National Broadcasting mm -hmm. Network. So at the end of the day, I am calling for like a U.S. based um, program. However, like it's hard and there's there's people out there racing that I'm good friends with. And so that's actually harder for me than anything else is being like totally neutral when the race starts going downhill. And I'm like, oh, whatever. Yes, yeah, so and so looks great. And just ignoring it. That's the hardest part for me is that there's a few people that I'm like very, very invested in as with friendships. And so that's the hard one. Everybody knows that I'm good friends with Emma Cobra. And it's like when her race started to go like not go well in Tokyo and shifting my focus to what all the other women were doing. And 
it's not that I don't love Courtney Franks. I think she's awesome, but like I wasn't in her wedding. I don't really know her. Right. Yeah. So it's hard to be like, oh my gosh, like as a friend, what's going, what's going on with Emma? I'm so worried about Emma, but then just totally shifting to, oh my gosh, Courtney Franks is making this race. She's might run away with this championship. Right. So that's the stuff that's harder for me. Yeah, for sure. And then how was it sharing the booth with Colts at Worlds? It was great. It was so fun because he's never been to a big track meet like that. And um, of course, he was into the distance events, but it was fun to see him there because he got really into the field events. And so Trey Hardy had let him sit next to him and listen in the booth and put the headset on. And so it was pretty cool to see him get into the sport. But it, that day, the, the thing he was the most obsessed with was the women's discus. And part of it, of course, was because Val Allman was throwing. And then my dad uh, was a Croatian immigrant. So Colts won fourth Croatian. And then there was a girl that was in the medals from Croatia. And he was like, so excited, could not turn away. Like I was trying to get him to introduce him to people. And he was like, "Eh, I have to see what happens here. So that was what blew my mind about it was there's something for everyone, right? And you never know until you're exposed to it, what you might be interested in. And it was pretty funny because I thought all he'd care about would be the distance events, but he was actually super into the field events. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, you probably didn't get genetics to do that one. Just so you know. (laughs) (laughs) I know there's been a lot of talk recently just about like how to improve the sport and kind of grow it more just from someone who's been so involved in it. Even now, uh, do you have any suggestions for how we could do that? Yeah, that's the question, right? Is like we struggle with ratings. We struggle to get people to watch our sport. Yet 90% of people ran track in middle school or high school or their sibling did or their mother did or their spouse did or partner did. So we, there's a, we've got to find a way to tap into that. I, I know this is probably an unpopular opinion, but I feel like we should just be like packing stadiums and giving people tickets. I feel like we should be giving tickets to high school teams, giving tickets to And because then the stands are packed, the athletes love a packed stadium. They don't care if they're running in front of high schoolers or if they're running in front of their parents, right? They love a packed stadium. Then we get the next generation motivated, watching the athletes. They're going to connect with someone and they're going to give us the talent. And then we keep this fandom going. Then they're going to raise their kids to be fans of track. So there's so many things that could be done and it's difficult and hard to think big scale. Like, do we really need the championship to be 10 days? Yeah, it's exciting and awesome. But do we really, like, I think we lose after those first four days. We kind of lose the general public's interest. And it's really just hardcore track fans. So I think maybe shortening up some of these championships and also just giving tickets out. Don't make someone pay $300 <laughs> to come watch a meet. Let them just come and be a fan. Yeah. Yeah. How would you? I mean, I understand how bills work. I understand that, like, bills have to be paid. Um, but there's got to be a way where we can subsidize at least some of the tickets and give them out to people who will come and be hardcore fans who couldn't come without that. Yeah. How would you shorten it? Would you kind of like add more events in a day? Would you eliminate some events, eliminate prelims? Like how do you think that would work? Yeah. Yeah, So, I mean, I'm unpopular, but I, I love when people double, but I also feel like if we had like a four or five day meet, you know, you've got start Thursday on Sunday, there's so much attention, so much hype, people wouldn't be able to double. So they would not like that. And yeah, maybe it it is like smaller fields from the get go, um, just a semi and then a final, I don't like, this is so unpopular. People are going to be booing me left and right, but I just feel like we really want to grow a bigger audience. For World Champs next year, they've announced that there's going to be an extra an extra um, heat in the 1500 oh, down. Yeah. Did you guys hear this? Yeah. So, or if you like lose, uh, you can like race again and like come back. You can race again, but I'm just like, what are we doing? We don't need more rounds of the 1500. That's not what we need, right? Like we don't we don't need another round. And even who does that help? So let's just say they're in the fastest heat. Because now we're not worried about time qualifiers, right? That's what this whole idea is. We're, we're less on time qualifiers, more on top four or five. What if you're in the fastest heat and you get fifth? Uh, but it's like the fastest heat by far. Now you have to do an additional heat to get in. So now you have an additional 1,500 meters in your legs when you were in the fastest heat and all four people ahead of you are medal contenders. I just feel like, what are we doing? Why are we making it harder on the athletes? Like, 
I don't, I don't know. I mean, there's some things that, yes, I think need to be changed, but I don't, I personally think, yes, it's always an advantage to be in the second or third heat, right? I mean, we know this, this is like a fact, and it's just a part of our sport that sometimes you get the luck of the draw and sometimes you don't, but I don't think we need to make up this extra round to try to make up for that. I don't know the whole, I'm just like, what are we doing? It's more confusing now. And that's the thing I think is like, we need to make it less confusing. Right. So that if someone's turning it on, they're not like, wait, this isn't a real heat. This is an extra heat. Wait, what? switch, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> let's make it, let's make it simpler, not more complicated. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I've been trying to get my girlfriend into like watching, well, like I was watching worlds nonstop and she would try to watch and it was like you were saying, like, it was just a little too confusing for her and that kind of pushed her away. So definitely ways we can make it simpler instead of what they're doing to make it more confusing um, is the way we should be going, I think. Yeah, and that's, I think, with broadcasting, that's been a tough spot. Like, if you're calling for Peacock, you know most of the people turning in are hardcore track fans, right? Because they're paying to watch that. So you can talk a little bit more about split times, projected times, um, you know, a little bit more technical stuff. But when you're on NBC, you're, you're hoping that someone just watched golf and it's like, oh, it's Sunday. Let's see what's coming on next. And then they're like, oh, cool. And they stay. So then you have to talk to a different audience that you're trying to entice. And you're trying to say, hey, this is really cool. This is really cool. Look what's happening. Da, da, da. But you can't be like, oh, they just split a 63-1. They're definitely under form, you know, because that's going to go over their head. So I think that's also a challenge is how we present it. Like, if it's on Peacock, you can be hardcore. You can tell all the stats because most of the people are paying to watch that they know what it means. But for instance, we're calling Brussels tomorrow, but we're going to show it on NBC on Saturday. So now we have to call it a slightly different way so that it's inviting. So that like, yeah, your girlfriend's like, oh, cool. Yeah, that makes sense. Instead of like, I don't know what the hell they're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, definitely. Um, and then what have you heard anything about um, Malcolm Gladwell's ideas for like how to grow the sport at all? No, I haven't. No. So he was basically saying um, that the focus is too much on like performance in high school compared to like creating lifelong athletes. Um, And then he mentioned some ideas like having a minimum number of people on the the high school teams in order to compete in races. Um, I think he said like 20 or something athletes and then having the scoring be like the cumulative time so that the last place runners times on the team matter more um any thoughts on that or if if you think that has any impact on like how many people are staying fans yeah that's a good question and a good idea i haven't heard about those ideas i'm open to anything creative right i think like we need to we need to shake it up and so maybe that would work i do remember when i was a nike athlete and they had nike cross nationals they would give out the anchor award and it was for the first top placing seventh runner so this person isn't scoring for the team but they're out there giving it their all and so the top seventh finisher would get this award called the anchor award the person who like anchored their team and so I do feel like we could one of the things I don't like is how we're so hyper focused on the top three and Mm. you know there's so many amazing athletes and stories and someone who is sixth or seventh might be the best in the world next year like Let's talk about them. Let's watch the progression. So I feel like that's a little bit of what we're talking about here is making sure that it's still welcoming to everyone. The first time I went to the Olympics, I was shocked at how if you didn't win a medal, you were nothing. It was like, wait, what? I worked my whole life to get here. And just because I didn't finish in the top three, it's like no one cares. And so I feel like that as a society and as a culture, we could do a better job of focusing on everyone, not everyone, but more stories. Um, and less on just the pressure of the top three. And that could absolutely work down to high school. I mean, we want people to be excited and we want them to stay in the sport. And so I'm open to any creative ideas. I think it's time for us to try some fun stuff. Yeah, I actually saw on Twitter, I think yesterday, uh, where somebody suggested that for cross country, we eliminate times altogether and just do placing. That way there's less pressure and it's a team sport, so you're kind of all working together, like trying to get there, like not worried about wh- how fast you're going to run and uh, worry about that for track when that's more like individual. Yeah, I mean, I, I think 
The one thing about having times on a cross country course is that you can compare them year to year and you can kind of like, I, we used to have the Rocky mountain shootout in Boulder uh, at, Col at university of Colorado. And you could kind of compare generation to generation, um, which is fun. Kind of the way foot locker used to be, but I agree that I am not a fan. I mean, it's not that I'm not a fan. I don't think it's interesting to watch someone try to break a record. I mean, of course it's interesting at some level, but what I like is like back and forth, they're heading down the backstretch the final time. Some are tying up. Some are pushing forward. Someone's coming out like crazy on the outside. I miss racing. And that's why I really love calling the championships because they end up being racing efforts. And a lot of the season is like someone chasing lights on a track, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I don't find that as interesting. So that's what I love about cross country. Whether we time it or not, the times aren't that important. What's important is who has the best strategy, who can finish hard, who can, you know, get through all those hills, that mud, whatever the course may give you and still be able to kick home. So I would be up for getting rid of cross country times, I guess. I mean, it doesn't matter, right? Like that's the one yeah. event where it doesn't matter. Yeah. And I've, they also kind of went off on that uh, and said that you could make the courses more fun and more traditional, like you were saying, the mud and like hills and trees rather than a lot of. I feel like now they just run on golf courses because they're so quick. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. not as exciting. Yeah. My, even my son was running over hay bales last year. You know, I'm like, come on, let's make it fun and interesting. Let's make cross country be its own sport as it should be. It should be different. It should be, should be challenging weather, should be challenging courses, should be challenging terrain. It shouldn't be on a flat pancake golf course. I mean, I don't think so anyway. I think it should be harder than that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think my most memorable race from like college was probably running at Griac in like pouring rain and we were just sliding down the hills and like <laughs> obviously going into it, I was hoping because we went there every year. So I was hoping to run my fastest time. But like now I couldn't tell you a single time I ran on there. But like that experience um, is still very, very memorable to me. So, yeah, definitely that sort of thing can can like create more of a bond with running. Totally. Kind of switching gears, uh, can you tell us about the podcast you're a part of, the Clean Sport Collective? <laughs> yeah, it's so we haven't recorded in so long. It's been so sad. We just had a meeting yesterday, and we were like, "What are we doing? We got to get back on it." But essentially, um, in 2016, a few people started the Clean Sport Collective, and they were all people that were tied to me and had seen what I had gone through. I had spoken out against my former coach, and I had. I don't know. Basically, that's what you need to know. I felt like he had crossed. I felt like he had crossed lines that you couldn't cross. And so it was initially started with the idea of getting people to take this plan, pledge, raising money um, and putting it towards more testing, putting it towards education. Well, it didn't work out that way. But in 2019, we went to a conference in London and all they kept saying was, uh, it was an, sorry, an anti-doping conference in London. And the whole time they had all these experts and they kept saying like, we're, we're here for the athletes, the athlete voices matter, yet no athletes were like talking on these panels. And so on the plane ride back, we were like, we should just give the athletes a voice. And so that's how the Clean Sport Collective podcast started, was inviting athletes on, finding out about who they are, what makes them the way they are, and letting them talk about doping for a little bit and their frustrations with it. So I like I said, we just had a meeting yesterday. We want to continue it. It's kind of fallen by the wayside because I just needed a break um, with my health and other things I was dealing with. But it's been really fun to interview athletes and let them tell their stories and and have a safe place to talk about doping. You know, like not just the internet where everyone's like screw you or whatever they say or yeah I agree, but whatever. Just a safe place where like we're just conversational and they can say like I'm frustrated about this instead without people attacking them. Yeah, that's awesome. Just with the prevalence in news of stuff like recently, like the Houlihan stuff. And I mean, I'll go on Let's Run, which is like a pit of like people just talking about random things, uh, whether they're correct or not. Um, but like, I guess, how prevalent do you think doping like still is? I mean, I don't really feel like we've made much, much headway. Like, you know, we've all heard about this study where they interviewed people um, maybe in 09 or 2011 athletes, and it was something astronomical, like 60% of athletes said they had joked at some point, yet we catch less than 2% every year. So it's a huge concern. I feel like people know how to get 
you know, how to pass the test. You can't be tested between midnight and 6 a.m. or 11 and 6 a.m. People know how to microdose. People know what to do. Um, if they if they are glowing, they just take a missed test because you're allowed three missed tests. So um, I feel like we need to shift. We always have to have testing, of course, but I think we need to shift to more like investigative work. And maybe someone never has a positive test, but we can still prove that they've been, you know, not good, not ethical. I hate to be a downer, but I think I still think it's a huge problem. And and that's something for me when I'm commentating that I have to like put in a little box and put it aside because I've literally called races where there's people in there that I truly 100% believe are doping, but I can't say that on air, right? So I have to just like sort of put it aside and enjoy what I'm watching. But that is something that makes um, commentating challenging at times. Yeah, I think after reading Matt Hart's book just about all the Nike stuff it really like opened my eyes to a lot of that and even without trying to I get a little skeptical about seeing people break American records and just get so much faster in progression so I think it's hard for the sport now yeah it is hard and that's the thing is it's like you can watch and sort of you can make your decision on what you believe is real or, or isn't but it but you don't want to lose the love of the sport, right? So it's kind of like being aware of what, of, you know, who do people train with? What does it look like? What does their improvement look like? But also when you're just watching the race, trying to just enjoy what's happening out there. And it can be tough. I feel like you've like sacrificed a lot personally to try to make the sport a better place in terms of like doping and all of that stuff. Um, do you think there's something that this like next generation of runners can do to kind of keep that momentum going and try to make the sport a more fair place? Yeah, I think they need to be able to talk freely to express concern. You can't just be like, I think that person's doping, but express concern, especially when someone is caught. What does that look like? Um, demand more, demand more testing, demand meets actually care you know don't bring in convicted drug treats don't work with people who everyone on their roster as you know if it's a agent you know who's everyone tested positive like why are we putting athletes towards these people why are we making athletes sign contracts that make them go test run with coaches that have tested positive themselves i just feel like they need to and i'm always here i always say this and you'll you'd be shocked at the dms i get i will fight for you but don't enter a group that makes you uncomfortable. Do not sign a contract if you're being forced to train with someone who makes you feel uncomfortable. Stand up for yourself because you know what? You may be 23 and you may feel like, I can't stand up to them, but you can. And the truth of the matter is people are running longer and longer and longer. And if you put yourself in a situation at 23 that makes you uncomfortable, you could be there for literally a decade or more. And so- just choose wisely and don't be afraid to say no. And if you need to rant, just slide into my DMs and I will help you get a better situation. Do you think that the difficulty in salaries and making a living with track kind of leads to some of that just so that you get faster, you make more money? Yeah, 100%. The contracts, not all contracts, but most of the contracts are written around a ranking, a US ranking, a world ranking, times that you run. If you're racing against people, let's just say in the top, in the finals of every race, let's just say, and this is obviously being super conservative, but let's just say there's three people that are doping. And we know it's more than that, but let's just say. Now you're being compared to times that run clean. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, now you're making these weird decisions. What if you have to be ranked in the, you run a personal best, but you have to be ranked top 10 in the world or top two in the U.S.? And even though you ran the best race of your life, other people ran faster or, you know, through further that are not clean. Now you're like, shit, you know, like, or you get injured. Now you're making bad decisions. I wish we could have massive contract reform all around, which made athlete, which really looked as an, at an athlete as a long-term investment. Like I said, look at the careers we're seeing. Shalane won New York at what, 36? Like, what are we talking about here? People are running for a super long time. So like really long-term contracts, not hold them to so many races per year. If they get injured, let's let them heal. Let's stop comparing them to these times that we know aren't real. I mean, like if we know, we're all pretty sure we know certain people are like, yeah, that's probably not real. Why are we comparing athletes to that? That's not fair. 
Again, like we talked about at the beginning, it should be about personal progression. If they are progressing, what more do you want? Yeah. Contracts have to be rewritten. Yeah, <laughs> they're bad. Yeah, and then just one last one. Um, we had Steve Magnus on a little bit ago and asked him about TUEs as kind of like a loophole. He's like Salazar would have people run upstairs and say they had asthma because they were breathing hard. And he gave us a stat that like 70% of like uh, Olympic level skiers were on like TUEs. So do you think people are just using it as some loophole? Yeah, I mean, the medications that Salazar was having people run up the stairs for now, you don't need a TUE for anymore. But I mean, still, that's like so like we know, obviously, if you have if you're running upstairs and trying to trigger something, that's a little weird. Um, but yes, I think we've seen this a lot in cycling too, where the TUE is given and it's basically allowing drugs, you know, like during performance. And I, I think that there's potentially a place for TUEs in extreme circumstances. But if you're so sick that you need a TUE, maybe you shouldn't be competing. Maybe you should be like getting better. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like yeah. life is shitty. Sometimes you get sick at the worst time. Um, uh, I don't know. I do think that TUEs are a wiggle, wiggle hole for sure. And so like, what is the suggestion? Like maybe it should be, if you apply for a TUE, maybe it should be looked at by like three independent doctors instead of just one. Right. So that we're making sure like, no, you definitely need this, this medication. And it's not just like, Oh, this doctor's just going to sign off on it. I think it's it's so complicated, but I do think TUEs are a problem. And I think, uh, what if even you had to show publicly what you put on your declaration form? So when you get drug tested, you have to write down everything you've had. And like, I mean, I haven't been drug tested in so long, so I don't know what it is now. But back then it was like at least seven days, maybe even 10 days. Um, what if you had to show that? Maybe you wouldn't, you know, you'd be a little embarrassed about some of the stuff you're doing. And I mean, I know that goes into personal rights and um it probably would never happen. But I do think there's ways that people are manipulating the system in a way, just like you said, with TUEs, that's totally allowed. But it's it's using the system to get away with stuff. And it's very similar to one of my concerns, which is the medicalization of the sport. You get a doctor, same situation, who says you have this asthma or you need this really fancy inhaler or you have this condition and then you're using this medicine that you don't actually need to enhance your performance. But it's all legal because the doctor prescribed it to you, right? So our sport, mm -hmm. our sport needs some help. It is not, we love it. It goes back in time. We think of Roger Bannister and we think of all these amazing moments with Billy Mills, but that's not where we are. You know, there's a lot of bad stuff going on. We need to be aware and we need to try harder to stop that from happening. I 100% agree with that. And I think it's great the stuff you're doing with the Clean Sport Collective. And I think more people should be doing that to try to, combat some of this stuff but yeah thanks for joining us today i think you had a lot of very helpful advice uh for a lot of athletes so thank you thanks so much for yeah. having me on i appreciate it thank you um where can people find you on like uh social media or anything else that you you might want to plug um i'm on twitter and instagram at Kara goucher and um I'm on Facebook, but I rarely post, so just don't even bother there. I would go to Twitter <laughs> or Instagram if you want to find out what I'm up to. Okay, great. Yeah, and then any listeners, make sure to tune in to the Brussels meet that you're announcing. Yeah, Brussels and Zurich. I'm calling it here from my house. It's kind of weird, but it's also fun. All right, can't wait.